Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Rachel, and on today's edition of the New Statesman podcast, I'm talking to Dr. Phil Whitaker, who wrote the cover story in the latest New Statesman magazine entitled How to Solve Britain's Public Health Crisis Without Spending More Money. Dr. Phil Whitaker, thank you so much for joining us today. You are not only the New Statesman's medical editor, but also a GP of many years, and you've written this very provocatively titled piece for us about the current NHS crisis and what you think could be done to to fix it. If we just start with the context of that, we have had headlines about the NHS crisis pretty much every day for the last couple of months, almost six months. How bad is it at the moment? Can you give us an overview? I've been a GP since the mid-1990s, getting on for 30 years. Uh, Never seen it like this before. It is the worst any of us have ever seen. And that's throughout the whole system. So a lot of attention paid to hospitals, quite rightly, and the ambulance service, but in primary care where I sit as well, we've never seen such levels of demand. So I think it's fairly obvious for anyone who's been following this story that the crisis is simultaneously an issue of increased demand and not enough supply or not enough capacity. There have been lots of calls for more money and lots of various sort of governments have pledged various things. But what's really interesting about the piece that, that you've written is you have some ideas as to how to fix some of the structural fundamental problems you say without it costing however many billion more. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because that seems like a sort of magic solution. Yeah, and I'm going to have to clarify, these are not my ideas. These are ideas that have been around for at least 10 years. So just winding the clock back a little way. So we go back to about 2010, we've got the Cameron-led coalition government. And essentially, they decided that the NHS funding was not going to be allowed to continue along historical trends. That's been around about 3.8% increase in funding every year throughout the NHS history. And they projected that into the future and said, no, we can't keep doing that. So although they did increase NHS spending through austerity decade, it was typically around, say, 1%, so well under the rate of usual growth. And if you go back to about 2013, Sir David Nicholson, who was then the chief executive of the NHS, was basically saying, we need to do something different. We carry on trying to operate the way we do. We are going to run out of money, which is what happened. And David Nicholson's vision was that this funding squeeze would 
catalyze a change in the way the NHS was structured and organized, essentially moving as much activity out of the hospital sector, which is the most expensive part of the system by an eye-watering amount, and moving a lot of activity out of hospitals and into people's homes and in the community. That's where we should be going, that, and that's how we will eventually fix this crisis. And it's, it, I genuinely don't think we need to keep piling vast amounts more in. We need to spend it very differently. And the problem during the austerity decade was that the Cameron government relied on a funding squeeze to catalyse this change. But there were various sort of forces that were going on at the time that meant the very bits of the health service and social care that needed to be invested in and robustly strengthened in order to take the activity out of hospitals were being cut. So the solution was being whittled away in front of everybody's eyes and nobody was managing that that situation. Your, your big theme in this piece is this idea that hospital admissions is a, a section that the government is always very keen to say, we're not going to cut money to frontline services, we're going to give more money to, to A&E services. Actually, that's the most expensive part of the system and it's more expensive to care for somebody in a hospital than it is in various other settings. And you talk about there being backdoor and front door problems, one of which being that it's very difficult to discharge patients who are medically fit to leave hospital because there aren't care places available or suitable care packages available, which means they end up being cared for in hospital when it would be much cheaper to care for them in the community or in other settings. I think you've got a stat here that says it costs three times as much to care for someone in hospital as in a nursing home, which is kind of astounding. Yeah, and that's nursing home, which is the most expensive part of the kind of community care sector. If you can support somebody in their own home, it's cheaper than that. So anybody that's in effect stuck in a hospital bed because there isn't the support to discharge them home and they no longer need hospital care, that's an extremely expensive way to do business. Not only does that cost money, but you've then got ambulances turning up at A&E with poorly patients, some of whom will require admission, but there are no beds because those beds are already occupied by people who can't leave hospital. So then you get the A&E department gets full, you get ambulances stuck outside, not able to offboard their patients, and then they can't go to other emergencies in the community. So that's the sort of back pressure through the system. And that's what is getting talked about a lot. We can call that the back door problem. The other side of the coin, which I think is talked about much less at the moment, is the front door problem. So essentially there's a huge amount of activity that's going into A&E departments and into the ambulance services that doesn't need to be there. And since 2010, that's become a huge and escalating problem, basically because of the way the NHS has been trying to triage or assess and decide on what to do with people who are presenting unwell. Essentially in 2010, NHS 111 was launched. And the idea there is you have people without clinical training operating a computer program that's called NHS Pathways, and they will take lots of details from a patient, type in those symptoms, and the computer will tell them what to do with that patient. And this was a, seemed such a great idea because this was so much cheaper than having doctors and experienced triage nurses manning the phones. But the problem is that Pathways can't make proper diagnoses. A person of whatever age who phones up and mentions the word chest pain in their 111 call will get an ambulance. Very few of those actually need an ambulance or to go to A&E, but Pathways can't take risks, so it just funnels all these cases into the ambulance service and A&E. And this is what I'm calling the front door problem. So the ambulance service and A&E departments are getting full of a lot of people who somebody like myself or my practice team would be able to deal with. And initially, sort of 111 was 
causing that kind of impact out of hours. So out of our services go back 20 years. We've been manned by GPs and experienced triage nurses. And 111's gradually taken over from that and the numbers of clinically trained people have been cut and cut. Uh, to, apparently to save money. And what it's done is it's hugely pushed up cost and activity in the emergency services. And that's starting to happen in daytime general practice over the last, say, five years or so, because numbers of GPs have been progressively declining. And you're now quite routinely in some parts of the country in a situation where patients will phone their practice, even at eight o'clock in the morning. They're told there are no appointments, phone 111. And around a quarter of all 111 calls get funneled into the ambulance service and A&E probably only a couple of percent actually need to go there. So this front door problem is driving the demand in, and then the back door problem is clogging up the hospitals and the departments so that they can't deal with the very acutely unwell people that they should be dealing with. So we've got to deal with both of these issues. Yeah, the GP problem is another thing that you hear about a lot, people saying that they can't get an appointment or they call up and they're on hold for 45 minutes and then there are no appointments that day or they're sent through a sort of e-questionnaire that tells them they might get an appointment in three weeks' time or whatever. But when it comes to politicians making kind of statements about what they think could be done, there is much more of a focus on hospitals, A&E capacity than on primary care and GPs. You've actually had some comments from various politicians that underplay the role of, of GPs or perhaps suggest that they're not as key a part of the system as other parts are. So you had Sajid Javid saying that perhaps we should get people to pay for GP appointments and some suggestions from the Labour Party that people could self-refer to the kind of specialist centres they need rather than going to see a primary care practitioner. Why, Firstly, why do you think politicians have this kind of blind spot when it comes to primary care and why, why are they wrong? Why they have the blind spot is a lack of experience. So they don't have any direct experience we do in general practice this would be a kind of status thing so hospitals are very that's where the most sick and the most acute problems are dealt with so there's high stakes there's high drama and traditionally consultants will have a, a kind of kudos about them that perhaps a general practitioner doesn't have so i think all of those things probably contribute but the lack of experience yeah i would it's an open invitation to west street to come and spend a day with me in the surgery and i can show him what i do but effectively and just to take some really ballpark figures, but if you took a hundred people who fell ill on one day, and these are not sort of, these are just illustrative, illustrative figures, but out of those hundred people, I'm I might not send anybody to hospital. I would deal with their problems, or maybe one. If you took those same hundred people and got them to phone one on one about exactly the same symptoms, about twenty five of them would get shunted into hospital or or ambulance services. I bring a completely different skill set to the assessment of what's called undifferentiated illness. That's people. And not only can I sort out who actually needs hospital care really efficiently, but I can also deal with the health problems of the 99 who don't. So a GP is really efficient. We get even more efficient if we know our patients. So there's a concept called continuity of care, which used to be extremely, extremely valuable and extremely high in the NHS, but has been declining again over probably the last sort of 15 years or so. And that's the idea really where a doctor and patient get to know each other over time. Once you've perhaps had about eight consultations with a patient and they don't have to be about big things, they can be about relatively minor things, you build up a relationship. The doctor gets to know that person and the circumstances of their life and how they are affected by 
illness and, and the families around them and the work that they do, etc. And the patient also gets to know the doctor and feels understood and builds up a level of trust. And if I know a patient well, I can think of any number of patients of mine who can present quite alarmingly. So they come with symptoms that would trigger all sorts of blue lights and allow bells at an of 111 or with a clinician who doesn't know them well. But because I've perhaps encountered situations with them over the years that are very similar and I know what the outcomes were and I know it's not as, as worrying or dramatic as it seems, I can handle that situation really differently. So there's a lot of there's a lot of subtlety about what goes on. And I think that anybody who's proposing solutions to the NHS needs to go and spend some time talking to experienced GPs about what we do in order to get an understanding of effectively the function we, we fulfill. We're commonly referred to as the gatekeeper. There's some kind of idea that the NHS is over there somewhere and we're manning the gate and then we allow people through who need the NHS. And that's not true. We basically provide the NHS. We provide 90% of all the healthcare that goes on in this country. And then we call in specialists and other services and investigations for the small minority of people who need that. And if you whittle away that capacity that the people who are providing 90% of the healthcare if you whittle that away, that healthcare need doesn't go, it doesn't disappear. It just goes into the wrong place. It goes into the hospital sector, the ambulance service, where it costs loads more money. And that's underlined the problems we're seeing today. Controversial question that you get near to touching on in the piece about people who go to A&E who don't quote unquote, need to be there. And you've heard this from sort of MPs as well. And you've heard, especially with the strikes have been going on, please to not, not use healthcare unless you need it. Is there an extent to which patients or people should be more responsible for their own healthcare or who are seeking the wrong services when they don't need to and putting extra capacity in it? Is there some, I don't want to say blame the patients, but is there some responsibility conversation that needs to happen there as well? Virtually not. I'm going to be controversial to say. I don't think anybody or maybe a tiny percentage of people go to A&E thinking, I know I don't need it, but hey, I'm going to go there. I think that's particularly true at the moment because you're looking at eight hours sitting on a hard chair if you're lucky to get. Why though are people there who don't need to be? Partly because they're told to. So they do what they're told to do. They phone NHS 111. They know quite rightly, I don't need a 999 response, but I know what I'm told. I'll phone 111. And as I said, a quarter of those will be told either we're sending you an ambulance or get yourself straight down to any. So they're just doing what they've been told. They don't need to be there. Um, or they might try and phone their GP, which is where they should be really, they should be phoning. And the capacity in general practice has been declining and declining over the course of the last 15 years or so. So they're not able to get an appointment or the receptionist is saying, we've got no appointments, phone 111. So patients are just lo locked in this horrendously frustrating loop. And so it's actually hardly any patient's responsibility. They're ending up at the wrong place. It's the responsibility of the people who are providing the health service. We do not have enough capacity with experienced clinicians in primary care who can deal with all these problems. The problems don't go away just because there's no capacity. They just end up getting funneled into the wrong bits of the system. So do not blame the patients. It's not their fault. And in fact, Patients are having a, an absolutely appalling time. It's incredibly frustrating for them and worrying and, and injurious. And people are getting worse outcomes and dying because the service is not geared appropriately to give them what they require. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. 
you can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We don't always do you ask us questions on these sort of interview podcasts, but we have had one that's from somebody who is a former chair of an NHS primary care trust who read your piece and enjoyed your piece. He's asked specifically about the impact of out of hours care or the lack of out of hours facilities, walk-in clinics, I think. I vaguely remember when I was a child being taken to something called Barn Dock. I'm not sure if that exists anymore, but pointing out that if you have a a healthcare need which is not life-threatening but does require in- immediate attention. There used to be services beyond the standard working day GP practices where you could do that that weren't going to A&E. Nowadays, and I speak from experience here, if you've got a child who has an ear infection on a Saturday, your options are try and get some Calpol from a service station or go to A&E, neither of which are appropriate for that. When did that cut down of those services start happening and how much of an impact has it had and could we bring something like that back? Yeah, middle question, how much of an impact? Huge. Could we bring something like that back? Yes. And should we? Yeah, we absolutely have to. When did it start happening? Slightly longer answer. So in 2000, up to 2004, every general practice had 24 hour, 365 days a year responsibility for their patient care. So practices would effectively be your first port of call at whatever time of day or night that you were on. Prior to 2004, practices were trying to cope with an increasing out-of-hours workload by banding together into co-optives, effectively. And I've worked out-of-hours all the way through my career, so I've seen all of these things happening. So I used to work for, a, to start with, my practice did our own call, but you were doing that on top of your day job. So it was becoming unsustainably busy. So you'd have disrupted nights and weekends and there was no recovery time. So Practices started banding together in co-ops, so we would share those out-of-hours duties, and they worked very well. But basically in 2004, there was a a new GP contract that was agreed with the the Blair government, New Labour, which removed the responsibility for providing out-of-hours care from practices and gave it to the health authorities. They were called PCTs, primary care trusts at that time. And primary care trusts had no idea how to do that, so they literally just went back to the GP co-ops and said, hey, could you organise this for us, please? And so we did. And actually for probably five, six years, something like that. Things carried on being really good, basically because the co-ops just carried on 
providing those services. So patients would still phone up and they would still see a local GP or an experienced practice nurse out of hours. But effectively, once you sort of got into austerity and the health service was being squeezed, the funding, people running the local health services started to say, where's the low-hanging fruit? Where can we save money? And they looked at the cost of -of out-of-hours services and said, could we not cut that back? And there were commercial organizations coming along and saying, we can do that for less, which was very tempting. So that's the trend that started going. And where those commercial companies that started providing out-of-hours services were cutting money was with clinician time. And this kind of coincided with NHS 111, which looks cheap because you've got non-clinical people operating a computer. So there's this drift over the course of that decade, 15 years, away from your sort of first port of call being somebody who can actually assess properly and deal with your problem to if you can get through to non-clinical call handles who as I say, we'll send lots of people to a and there are fewer and fewer clinicians in the out-of-hour setting who can actually provide the care. I still do a, an out-of-hour shift every week. That's part of my kind of, that's what I do. That's part of what I do as a doctor. But the, the service I work for fills at least half its shifts. It can't get clinicians for at least half its shifts. So there should be two doctors at the centre where I work and there rarely are. There's usually only me. So the capacity has gone. But as I say, the healthcare needs don't go away. So they just flood into other bits of the system. So we've got to get that capacity back in the out of hours. And it's people like me and it's people like the nurses and paramedics that I work alongside that can actually provide care at a lower cost and much better for patients, shorter time and much more holistic care and better for the NHS as a whole. Zooming out a bit from the UK, you did mention that while the Cameron Osborne government didn't increase NHS funding in line with the trend, healthcare funding has risen. And one of the reasons for the increased demand is the fact that the UK, along with many other countries, has an ageing population and more people who require more complex care for longer. To what extent do you think that the current crisis is a specifically British problem or are other countries with similar demographics facing similar challenges? And if they're not, can we learn anything from any of them? Yeah, it's not a British problem. It's replicated across the Western world. And it's great. It's a testament to the kind of societies that we and the kind of healthcare systems that we have. Not everything's down to healthcare and an awful lot of it's down to socioeconomic factors, good diet and opportunities for leisure and exercise. But basically, yeah, people are living longer. We are able to keep people alive with conditions that would have ended life even at the outset of my career. And that's true of lots of other countries. I think we are an outlier in in our, what we might call addiction to hospitals. Probably the, the most telling international comparison I could cite is Norway. So Norway has a quite a similar sort of Western demographic population, but they've done something really different with their health service. They've got every person in Norway is registered with a name GP. So this is the kind of system that we used to have in the health service 20 odd years ago. And their GPs are looking after about 1,200 people. The average in the country here now is about 2,200. So they're looking after roughly half as many patients as as we are. And because they're registered with a name GP, so they see that doctor most of the time, they get the continuity care that I talked about. So those established relationships. And there was a fantastic and extraordinary piece of research that was published last October from Norway. And they looked at their entire four and a half million, that's virtually their whole population, over a 15-year period. And they showed that what they're doing with their primary healthcare system, so 
patients having continuity care and with enough GPs to look after a reasonable number of patients, even though they're complex and frail, just like ours, they were able to reduce back hospital activity by around about a third. So a third less emergency admissions, a third less out of hours services contacts, and they were able to reduce mortality, so death rates by a quarter. So we can definitely learn, so probably not off to pay, but if West Streeting wants to go to Norway, and go and talk to them about how they're organizing their health service. And Steve Barclay could get on the same plane and go out there and have a look. We could learn a lot. And the professor over in Norway who did that study, really important study, he came to Jeremy Hunt's select committee last year. Jeremy Hunt was at that time the chair of the Health Social Care Select Committee of the Commons, and he gave evidence. And I can't shake the image of this Norwegian professor of primary care, basically just shaking his head and saying, the UK used to be the gold standard. This is this was the country that every other country in the Western world and around the world looked up to for how we organised general practice, how we delivered primary care to our patients. And he was just shaking his head and going, "What? Where have you gone wrong? Why are you? Why have you gone wrong?" And so yeah, we need to be a bit humble and look to countries like that to see how much better we could do. And finally, we are recording this on a day when ambulance workers are striking. We've got more strikes from NHS staff, nurses, the prospect of junior doctors planned uh, in, in, in the next couple of months. Everyone is feeling, I think, quite depressed and demoralised and despairing at the state of our health service in this country. Do you have anything to feel optimistic about or any ways to feel positive about the situation we're in and how we might be able to get out of it. Yeah, I do. Essentially, because the things I've been talking about, this idea of we need to rebalance health and social care towards community care. We need to restore capacity in primary care and we need continuity of care. Those concepts are, are gaining traction. The importance of continuity of care, which is so important to reduce costs around the system and to improve patient care and experience. That was a fringe topic even a few years ago. Um, but it's now something on the political agenda, and it's certainly understood by Jeremy Hunt, for example. I'm not so sure about Steve Barclay at the moment. And Wes Streeting, I think, gets it. So there are some important people who are getting the hang of that. I think we've still got some way to go in terms of the importance of the GP to the cost efficiency of the NHS and the quality of care to patients. But here I am in the great position of talking to the New Statesman, there are a lot of other very eminent and capable people who are also pushing that same message. And I feel if we can get understanding on the part of those who are charged with, with policymaking, then we have got the future and, and we can get the NHS back to being what it should be and what it was as recently as 2010. You've probably seen some articles at the moment saying how many people who've got disposable income are going to private GP services because they've lost faith in the NHS, which I completely understand. I can turn that around as, as recently as somewhere in, a, in the kind of 2008 to 2010 era. The private medical insurance industry was having kittens because the NHS was so good and so swift and so responsive at meeting patient need that people were not buying health insurance policies. Why would you? Because the NHS was so good. And I remember a private health insurance company designing products that would only kick in if the health service failed to meet their sort of six-week target to get to see a consultant and such. So they were trying to find new products that they could sell to people. And we can get back there. We, it's not that long ago. And with the right leadership, we can get the health service back there so that there is no incentive for people 
to look elsewhere and spend money that many people don't have. But we do need the right leadership and our leaders need the right understanding. I dearly love it if we could have a health secretary who actually had some background in healthcare. We don't seem to be particularly good at that in this country, but as the second best, anybody is welcome to come and spend a day with me in my practice and see what it is I do and I can talk to them and try and impart a little bit of understanding. Open offer. Dr. Phil Whitaker, thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. And you can read the piece, How to Fix Britain's Public Health Crisis Without Spending More Money, in the latest issue of The New Statesman or online, or you can listen to it on our Audio Long Reads podcast. You've been listening to The New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my guest, GP and medical editor of The New Statesman, Dr. Phil Whitaker. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow and leave us a nice review. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.